All right, grab your Bibles, turn to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 12. Um, I'm actually preaching a topical sermon today, and so we're going to be looking at several different passages uh, for the few minutes that we're together. But we're going to start here in Romans chapter 12, just as a basis for, for what I'm going to talk about. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there's one down the middle uh, middle row of seats, and you're welcome to use that. Keep it. And I didn't look and see what page number Romans would be on, but you can just look on the table of contents in the front, and that will give you 616. Thank you, Jordan. All right. Looks like everybody's ready. Romans 12. We're going to read 9 through 13. Let's read this together. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pause to say thank you. Thank you for a beautiful day. Um, we love the reminders of the seasons, especially when uh, winter turns over to spring and everything's in full bloom. We thank you for uh, your creativity on display right in front of us. Lord, we thank you for your word today and pray that we would um, be both challenged and encouraged today as we gather as a church and and are both encouraged and admonished by your word. And Lord, as we pause these two weeks to reflect on and celebrate uh, just two years as being a, a worship gathering, a church, um, we do thank you uh, for Transit Church. We thank you for vision. We thank you for uh, just the people um, of this church family. And uh, and God, we just pray, God, your blessing on um, on what we're doing. God, we pray that uh, we wouldn't come up with our own ideas, but Lord, we would search the scriptures and and that we would trust that yours uh, are right and true and good and holy. And Lord, even as we uh, think about uh, church, Lord, we pray that we would uh, see her as the vehicle that you have chosen to advance your kingdom, to make yourself known on the earth, that we would agree with your methods, that we believe that um, that all that you're doing in our midst is uh, is right and it's good, and that you use even us to make Jesus known to the individuals that we come about, but more importantly, um, to the world that doesn't know him. And we pray this in Jesus' great name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. All right, so if you are new or if you haven't been here in a while, we are in the midst of um, a, a series in the Gospel of John. And because April is the month that we observe the, the launching of our church, the start of our church, um, we're pausing just for two weeks to, to, to acknowledge that, to reflect, um, to respond, to celebrate the, the work that God has been doing. Um, and, uh, you know, just it, it's been a reflective time for me. I mean, two years ago, uh, we launched a church where, where there was none, uh, had our first public service in this room. Actually, we had the first public service 
It wasn't public. It was like we were practicing. We practiced on on Easter of 2013, and then we had two more practice services, and then we had a uh, a public gathering. But even during those you know those start you know those practice days, we had a few people venture in because we were putting signs out on the road. It, I mean, it was just a neat time. Um, you know, the start of every church has a story, and ours isn't unique, but it is an interesting story. I'm not going to tell it to you. But uh, you can go on our website and I think under the thing about or whatever it says, there's a little video that uh, two minute video that sort of uh, it's, it's me and, and Larissa talking and it shows pictures of a few of you. Most of you weren't here during those days, but uh, it just un- unfolds uh, just our lives and what we were thinking about um, that led us to to planning a church. And I would tell you, no one wakes up, you know, just out of a, a dead sleep and just like. I'm going to plant a church today. You don't do that. Um, maybe you'd be crazy if you did that. Uh, actually, you're crazy if you plant a church, but that's a different story. Um, but I will tell you, just in the, the process of, of building this church, really the process of every church is, is a journey. It's a journey that God is taking uh, a man and his, his wife or his family on to, to bring what you see to to fruition, and uh, my journey probably was a lifelong journey to get me to where where I am. It took contours through the you know twenty years through the army, um, and all that the army taught me about leadership and selfless service and servant leadership and all those things. And 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 voila, we're here. Um, here's what I want to convey with that. You know, the heart of why we started our church was was really uh, what we felt burdened with regarding what God wanted to do in people's lives um, and uh, through his church. And that's reflected in our vision. This is our vision. Four words, pretty simple, transformed lives, impacted communities. You know, most churches start by reacting to something. It's the, the person that plants it is reacting I don't know any church planner that when he is starting out planning his church, he's not reacting to something. He's reacting to what he sees out in the community. He's reacting to what he sees out in the world. He may even be reacting to what he experienced as a Christian in his former church and say, I don't want to do it like that. I want to do it like this. That Those things aren't necessarily wrong. And when I think about um, my wife and I starting this church, our reaction firstly was against church small talk. Y'all know what that is? It's, it's how Christians get together and you ask them, well, hey, hey, you know, what's going on? How you doing? It's like, I'm doing good. My money's good. My life's good. My relationships are good. Um, everything around me is good. And, you know, if you're a person that's not doing too good, that Christian small talk makes you feel kind of bad. Um, and the, the the reaction that we had was, the majority of people around us that weren't transparent enough when life wasn't good to even to, to be allowed to say that, that that life wasn't good, you know, and, and I believe in the church, it should be OK to not be OK. You don't you don't want to stay there, but it really is OK in the church to not be OK. That's what the community of church is for. So we were against the we were acting to. Christian small talk that that sort of proposed um, that life was always good. We started a, a Bible study. It was a marriage group. Um, and this Bible study ran for uh, in our last church about one and a half, two years. And 
over time, just in the context of couples coming together, talking about marriage, where does it look? What does a gospel centered marriage look like? One day, I mean, Larissa and I were talking and, and we just came to the, the conclusion, you know what? This really feels like church, church to us. People coming together um, in authentic community where walls are. I mean, you just you just let the, the wall down a little bit and you're able to talk about how you really are. And in the in the confines of that group, there's there's challenge, but there's safety and there's sharing and there's caring. And that was church for us. So that was our primary reaction that that. That really is why we are the church that we are here at, at the transit. Um, the other thing that we reacted to um, was what it means to live out the gospel. Uh, in fact, the debate in evangelical Christianity right now is what really does the gospel do? Does the go- it's, a, it's a gospel, a prayer that you pray, you walk the aisle, you bow your head, you pray a prayer at the end of the service. Um, is it, uh, you know, a pastor has this, this sermon and he says some things at the end that you can respond to. Is that what the gospel is or is it, or is the gospel something that's supposed to help you live your life? This is an important point. And so our vision statement really is a reflection of what we think God does in a person's life to mature them over the course of their Christian life as a follower of Jesus. Last week we talked about transformed lives. And when we think about transformed lives, um, what I'm talking about is a life that's um, transformed by the the perfect life, death and resurrection of Jesus. I'm talking about gospel identity and gospel identity. um, Firstly, gets gets to the, 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 the issue of knowing whose you are. We read a passage in Galatians and. Uh, there's this beautiful phrase at the end of Galatians where where Paul says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and, and its desires. And so the reminder there is, is you, if you're if you're a Christian, you've trusted in in the finished work of Jesus on the cross in your place for your sin. You belong to Jesus. He's yours you're his. And the neat thing is, whether you see it or not, he's doing something in your life to transform you into his image. And he does that by the spirit. And so rather than our moral performance and our good works earning us favor with God, you don't live life that way. You live life instead trusting that Jesus, your work isn't good enough that you can never merit God's favor. Jesus has been good for you because you can't be that good. It's our faith in Jesus' work and his perfect record, and we base our relationship with God on what Jesus has done, not what we've done. And that should be our foundation. That really is the gospel. Here's what the gospel does. The gospel comes in and it affects us individually to bring us to reconcile us to God. And then the Holy Spirit starts to change us so that we're more like Jesus. But that's just the start. The second thing that the gospel does, it includes us into a community. And that really is what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about this idea of 
you, an individual person, being brought into the family of God, into the community of God, and that when you come into God's community, he has something for us together to do. And so if transformed lives ask the question of, of how do we change? How does the gospel change us to be who God intends for us to be? Impacted communities ask the question, how can we change the world? And that really is what God is after in us as a people. And so I'm going to I'm going to expound on this part of our vision really with two points. The first point is the gospel forms community. The gospel forms community and that community is the church. The gospel forms community. You know, as, as Americans, we can be deeply individualistic people. God's design, however, is for us to be immersed in not just individual life doing our own thing, but he wants us to be connected in community with other followers of Jesus. And it has always been like that. God has always been building a people for himself. And really, God, the the way that we should look as a people reflects how God has always been in eternity. God has always existed in eternity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, perfect community has always existed with God. And so when we come into relationship with God, he's, he, intent, he intends for us not to be uh, a Lone Ranger all by ourselves, but to be immersed in other people who could, could, who are also changing to be more like him. He, he starts that with Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in the garden. And think about it. In chapter two, he said, it's not good for Adam to be alone. And so he gives Adam uh, a helper. All those animals that he made weren't good enough for Adam. And so he gives him a helper. And then they start having, they start having kids. All these people here together. And God's intent was that Adam and Eve would love God and walk with him and obey him. And then they they would have kids who would love God and obey him and walk with him. And they would have kids who would love God and obey him and walk with him. And there would be this holy nation of people who were called to to be in fellowship with God. And so he started with Adam and Eve. And then through the patriarchs, uh, Abraham, Isaac and Jacob, you have the nation of Israel. And then we cross over into the New Testament and we have the establishment and the building of God's church through through the apostles. And so since the days really that that God declared that Adam was alone and, and needed a helper, People have always uh, been made for community, and I think we've always longed for it. I mean, if you are honest with yourself, there's, there's something about us that doesn't want to be by ourselves. Why do we have big cities today? I mean, I mean, there are a few people that live in rural areas, but there are more people that live in big cities than that live in rural areas, and that's because pe- we don't like to be alone. We like to be near other people. Um, you would think that today with the technology that we have, that where, where life seems so connected that we wouldn't be people that, that feel alone. We've got Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and, uh, and my son, David, who is all about technology, helped me learn a, uh, a new thing called Periscope. Now, Periscope is, is I guess, a subsidiary of, t- of Twitter. And a person can have their iPhone and have their video showing. And, I mean, someone could break it up right now and just show. You could show the world uh, whatever you're seeing. It would be live. In fact, uh, one of my pastor friends um, uh, Periscoped round 12 of the, the fight last night. 
Now, I didn't stay up that late. That's just a little late for Jeff. But I saw it this morning. It's like, wow, he stayed up. Way- I mean, is he, pre- is he preaching this morning? It's crazy. But here's, here's the thing. We got all this connectivity. We can see what people are doing at any minute of the day. And yet, I don't think that makes us any closer as a people. And, and here's a, a living example. Go inside Starbucks this afternoon. There's this great spectacle that happens. You have all these people. You have this ambiance. You got nice music playing, lights of dim people. And, and what are the people doing? A few will be sitting at a table conversing with another. But th- those are the few. Most people, even if you're sitting at a table with each other, have their laptops up. They got earphones in and they're typing away or they're reading or they're just sitting there enjoying, uh, enjoying a drink. And so you got all this activity and everybody's alone. And that really um, mirrors what we see all across our world, just not at Starbucks. And so how does the gospel community form? Um, I like the book of Philippians. Uh, Another nostalgic point about our church, when we were in our core group phase, after we had gone through just a lot of talk about what does the gospel mean and what does it look like for us to build a church and vision and values, we went to the book of Philippians. We didn't go through the whole book uh, because we actually launched and started something else. But um, we did uh, go through much of Philippians. Philippians is a neat book because it's it's Paul writing to a church that he planted. Um, And he's looking, he's writing to them 10 years after he planted it. And he's he's not scolding them. He's not chastising them. It's a great letter. He's thanking them for for being partners in the gospel. Uh, They had actually uh, contributed financially to his ministry. And he's he's just called writing to to thank them for being on the journey with him to find really about the, the background to the book of Philippians. We actually have to go to Acts. Acts chapter 16 kind of gives us some information on Paul as he's happening upon uh, this Philippian city. Now, and we're not going to go there and read, but I'm, I'm just going to pull out a couple things. Firstly, Paul is at the end of his first missionary journey. Paul was a church planner. And what Paul would do after he was commissioned to go and plant churches is uh, he'd take a few people with him and he'd get on a boat or walk and he'd travel around to mo- all the major cities in the Roman province. And Paul would do really two things. He would go to the synagogue and he preached the gospel. And those Jews that were called of God would, would follow him. And then he would go into the, you know, the middle of the street, wherever, and he preached to Gentiles. And, and so Paul was intending to go to Macedonia, which was on the western end of the Roman province. And he kept running up against obstacles. The Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go into, into Macedonia, uh, into, um, actually, yeah, it, he was going towards Macedonia. Um, and then he has a vision. And it's this, this vision was, uh, don't go there, go here. And so he just follows, follows the vision. And he ends up uh, in this, this coastal town of, of Philippi. And something neat started happening. He was there for a couple of days. And then one morning he decided to get up. It was the Lord's Day. And he, went to, he decided to go to a place of prayer, assuming there would be people near there who were wanting to pray. And the first person that he meets is uh, an Asian female business owner named Lydia. And Paul preaches the gospel, prays with them. She comes to faith. She invites them to her home. And Lydia becomes the first convert in this, this church at Philippi. And 
uh, we don't know if it was the next day or very soon after, they're traveling in the city of Philippi, and he comes across a, uh, uh, a slave girl who has a, uh, a demonic spirit. And this slave girl is incessantly uh, saying these words. This man's the, the, the servant of the Most High God who proclaimed the way of salvation. They kept saying that over and over and over again. And, you know, those are kind of flattering words. But if you can you imagine like one of your, your three year old child who just learned how to talk, saying that over and over again or something like that? It was getting on Paul's nerves. And so Paul turns and, you know, he basically said, come out of her, you demon. And this girl's a slave. And so her divination is is earning money for her, her slave owners. And as soon as Paul um, cast the demon out. She, uh, her owner can no longer earn a living by her, her her divination. And so they put Paul in jail. But we don't know. We don't we don't get the end of the story. We don't know if this slave girl was um, if she was converted or not. We assume she was. But the second convert of this of this young church plant is going to be uh, a demonized slave girl, at least a former one. Paul goes to jail and it's mid- midnight. He's with Silas. And they're praying, they're singing hymns, they're shackled to their their chains. And uh, the jailer there is a a former soldier. Uh, He's a hard guy. And uh, while they're singing and praying, there's an earthquake. Their shackles come loose. And really, everybody in the prison could have been set free. Um, Instead of running away, Paul Paul gets all the prisoners to stay there. And the, the interesting thing is... The, the jailer comes back and he's about to kill himself because he knows, he knows he's going to get in trouble because all these prisoners have have escaped. But Paul says, hey, don't kill yourself. Hey, we're right here. We've been waiting on you to come back and come sort of take charge of us. And the man falls on his knees before Paul and says, what must I do to be saved? And so this is the beginning of the church at Philippi. So you got an Asian female upscale business owner. And really her story, the story behind her story is her material success could never satisfy her. You have a former slave, demon-possessed girl. I mean, what do you do with that? You have a hardened soldier turned prisoner guard and, and all of his household, because of this miracle that he sees inside of his own prison, brings him to faith and his own household. This is the church. This is the church at Philippi. Look around you. Seriously, look around you. I mean, we're not first century people, but if we would take five minutes and listen to every one of your backgrounds, surely there would be as interesting of stories as we as we see here in Acts chapter 16. And the point is. What else could have brought these people together? Except for the gospel. A common gospel brought these wayward people and their lives and the journey that they were, the trajectory of life that they were living, it brought them together. These people would never have gone to the same restaurants. They never would have hung out in the same parts of town. They never would have listened to the same kind of music, probably. But because God had radically transformed them through Paul's ministry, they shared a a common bond deeper than anything else that could have divided them. They shared a bond that that overrode all the things that divide us today. Race, 
economic status, where you live, your background, all, all those things that even today divide us, even in this room. And so they were only there because of the gospel. They were only a part of this church because of the gospel. And the lesson is, really, so are we. That's why I had you look around. Even in this small crowd, I mean, we are a very diverse group of people that would not be together if it were not for the gospel. The gospel is the deepest foundation for any church community. And so there's one problem with Christianity and community, and that that problem is we're sinful and we'll mess up anything that's good. And sometimes when we come together in Christian community, two things happen. Either we idolize the community. Either the the people there become our source of affirmation or we only find our identity in it or that's that's our only secure spot. Or we might be so prideful that we, I mean, we stiff arm and say, I don't need anybody. You know, God saved me. I can read the Bible for myself. I can pray by myself. I can change for myself. I don't need any of you. We do any of those, those two things. And practically how this looks is this. We divide, we divide ourselves into groups of affinity. And so you have your, you have your young single group that have no kids and they like to hang out. They like to read the Bible together and they can, you know, they can, they can meet later in the night because they don't have any kids. And you have your, your, your group that has kids. And then you have your older, mature Christians who get together. And then you have your people who like to get really deep in the word. It's like, we don't want snacks. We don't even want water. All we want to do is just open our Bible and talk about theology. That's all we want to do. And we divide ourselves into these groups. And I mean, that's not real community. That's offending. That's surrounding yourself with people who are like you. And anybody can get along with people like that. Because of our sinfulness, these commonalities in life stage or desires can become the bond that holds us together instead of the gospel. That's what sin in us does. The picture that we get of community in the Bible is not one of dependence or independence, it's interdependence. Still in the same book of Philippians, Paul says this in Philippians 127. If I can find it. Go eat popcorn. That's how I remember Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Go eat popcorn. How do y'all remember books of the Bible? Do y'all give mnemonics like that yourself? Go eat popcorn. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. There you go. That was for free. Paul says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The emphasis on the last part, that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. He's saying that there's going to be things that are going to come up against you in your Christian community. And and you have to you have to press into each other, standing side by side, even when life is is trying to get you to to make an idol of your community or be by yourself. You got to fight for this. We have to fight for a commonality in the gospel. Why? Because we're sinful. So here's a question. What does gospel form community look like? What does it look like? I think it looks like what Paul talks about in Romans 12. And we read that verse uh, those verses a little bit earlier. So we're going to go quickly through through these. And if you're in community groups with us, these community groups start this week and uh, and we will expound on these in community group this week. Paul firstly says in verse nine, 
He says, let love be genuine. Let love be genuine. You know, the, the, the word translated genuine here means love that's free of pretending, free of simulating or acting. In other words, it's authentic. I like to say it's a love that allows you to wear no masks. You ever been in an environment where you didn't have to wear a mask? You didn't feel like you had to put, you know, you could wake up in the morning and it's okay if your hair wasn't right and you didn't put up your makeup and it was, you know, you didn't have your contacts in, you had your glasses on and it was just you. And you might have been in clothes that you wouldn't have worn out in public, but it was still okay because it was just you and you felt right and you felt accepted. And that really is what he's saying. Let love be genuine. It's an authentic kind of love. It's not surface only or fake. No masks are allowed, in other words. And so here's the question for us. What should we be doing as we form the community of God? Not just the community this big, but when we divide up and, and we're also in smaller communities around, around our city and our, and our region. This, this is maybe a little challenging, but I think what Scripture um, pushes us toward is we should be regularly confessing sin and the struggles of our life and how we fail and our fears and those kinds of things. And I agree, it takes a while to get there because we're prideful people and we want our stuff and our junk to be our junk and our stuff. I'm no different than you. But here's the reality. The reality with all of us is that we have woefully fallen short of God. And yet he still loved us. He's loved us in Jesus. And so the gospel frees us to be authentic. The gospel frees us to admit that our struggles and strengths have not been fully sanctified. And the gospel allows others to apply the grace of God to areas of our lives that we desperately need it. Paul says, abhor what's evil. Um, a gospel-centered community acknowledges the presence of sin and welcomes the confession of sin. But we just can't stay there. We got we got to challenge sin when we see it in our midst. I like to say that uh, a community like this, it needs to be a safe place that you can come and be yourself. But but we shouldn't hear someone touting about uh, a, a sinful life, a pattern of sin and not say something that's going to both encourage him in the gospel, but also correct him or her. We owe that to them as the, as God's people who he's called to care and share for each other. Paul says the, the reaction we should have to sin is to abort. And that means that really the, the sense is shiver in horror. You ever, ever, you ever taken a cold shower that you weren't ready for? Um, my first deployment, Desert Shield, Desert Storm, way back in 91, um, there was no such thing as cold as hot water. So seven months, I took seven months of, of cold showers and I only got one shower a week. And so we had these, uh, I forgot what they were called, but it's like a, a little, you put water in it and you, you had a little shower spigot on it and you, you turn the thing on and we're out in the middle of the desert and we put uh, some, some uh, I can't remember my army terms anymore. Isn't that just awful? A, a poncho. Yeah. So like, a, you know, just a little rain repellent poncho. That was our shower curtain. And you got in and you pulled that lever and it was like, oh, seriously. 
And it was a cold shower. There's no escaping it. If you wanted to get the nastiness off of you, you took a cold shower. You put your leg in and you got your hip in and then your, then your tummy. And then by, you got, by the time you got your tummy wet and cold, your, your whole body could just, you could handle it. But it was, it was like, I bored. It was like, uh, Lord, please deliver me from this, this thing. That's what Paul is saying. He says, abhor sin like you would not ever want to take a cold shower like that. Believers are to abhor those things that go against God's purposes and harm both ourselves and others. While we want to be honest about sin in community, we shouldn't excuse sin. We have to nudge each other toward repentance that leads to gospel driven changes in lifestyle. Proverbs 20, uh, 27, 6 says, faithful are the wounds of a friend. Y'all need some friends. We all need some friends who will encourage us on our good days. But in our bad days, they'll they'll encourage us, but also nudge us not to be satisfied and admire of our sin. In verse 10, he says, love one another with brotherly affection. Uh, the Beatles sang a song. All we need is love. Is that the Beatles? You know, because of the gospel, we uh, believers are called to possess a deep brotherly love for each other. That that actually is literally as if we came from the same womb. We're supposed to treat each other as brothers and sisters because the gospel forms us into a family that's often thicker than our our actually blood family. Because what brings us together is the the blood of Jesus. And, and really, the only way to, true, to, to stir up true affection for other people such that they feel like family is if you're affect, it affected and, and infected by the, the realization of God's affection for you in the Lord. In verse 12, he says, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. And I, I think those words there remind us that this world isn't all that there is. And that we have to keep pressing for uh, for a hope that's yet to come. We have to be patient for something that's beyond us because the world is winding down. It's going to get harder before it gets better. And we have to be persistent in our prayer. These are good reminders for us as the community of God. And here's the other thing. Paul wasn't writing this letter to an individual. He was writing this to a, a community of people. What, what they, they would have, this is what they would have done. They would have gotten Paul's letter. They would have broken it out. It would have been read orally. And it would have been read several times until he got the gist of it. So he was given these commands, these imperatives, to a group of people who were already in community with each other. They're supposed to be practiced in community. We're supposed to be doing this stuff together. Verse 13, contributing to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. That means in community, we're supposed to be meeting each other's needs. Um, a lot of times we, we, we resort to thinking about, all right, somebody's, uh, they can't pay their bills. Um, you know, something's happening. I got to chip in some money. And, and granted, I think that would be an implication of this. But really, this is talking about if you have any kind of gifting or ability to help someone that can't help themselves, Use it. If you're a nurse and you can give medical advice, or if you're a doctor and can give some, you know, some treatment to someone in the family of God, then absolutely do it. If you're one of those technical people that knows how to work with, you know, actually, we got living examples here. Scott Williams has fixed unknown numbers of, I, don't, I shouldn't say this because you guys are going to bring your computers to him. He's like fixed broken, broken computers of people right in our community, right here. 
I can't do nothing for you, but <laughs> that's what we're supposed to be doing. And if you're a parent and you have had a little bit of success, like no one has perfect success, but say your kids are out of diapers, they're even out of the, you know, the the why stage, they're they're a little bit older, then you have parenting wisdom because you've already gone through some of the, the hard parts and you can uh, you can give that wisdom to people who are in the you know the, the tough toddler stages. And of course, as your pastor, if you have Nats tickets or you know <laughs> Wizards tickets during the playoffs, then you can contribute to the needs of the Saints and show hospitality to your your pastor. I'm kidding. Kind of. All this to say, we want to be a gospel driven community. We want the we want to come together and gather as God's church corporately because we're told to do that in Hebrews. But we also want to divide up and be uh, smaller communities, primarily where you live. The way our community group structure is, we have them regionally. At least we've tried to do that. And. The intent would be go to the one that's closest to you. Why? Because you're more prone to go to it if it's closer to you and life is happening as I got to, you know, I got to cook and the kids got to get do something with the kids, all that stuff. And so you don't have to, but that, that's the way it's structured. And it's intended that old and young and with kids and without kids and black and white and red and blue and purple are all mixed up together. Why? Because if we don't do that, then we aren't being pressed. We aren't being pressed to get to know people that, that aren't like us. If you're just around people like you, it might be fun, but it's not going to sanctify you. It's not going to sanctify you the the way God intends for you to be sanctified. So that would be my encouragement for you. The second thing, the second point, the community has a mission. The church has a mission. The gospel brings us into the kingdom and places us in the community of the church. God gives that community, the church, a mission. You know, a lot of times we articulate that mission in terms of the Great Commission, Matthew 28. Go, therefore, and uh, make disciples, baptizing them, teaching them all I've commanded you, and lo, I'm with you always. And that absolutely is the mission of the church. And then from that, implication-wise, we talk about world missions. We talk about social justice. Our world could use some social justice right now, honestly. We talk about church planning and evangelism. These are absolutely integral to the advancement of God's kingdom. We should be doing them as individuals. More importantly, we should be doing them as a church. However, I want to give you a different perspective in my last few minutes on our mission. How do we really change the world? I think, obviously, all those things are important I just named, but what I would encourage us to think more of is it starts with serving. It starts with service. The, es- the essence of Christian faith is that we've been created, called, and saved to serve both God and others. And the, you know, our best example is always Jesus. I mean, he is the, he's the answer you should always give to the question. I mean, Jesus. That's what my kids do. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being bound, uh, found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the, de- at the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and, and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so Paul exhorts us in this passage that our service should be grounded in the truth of who Jesus is. And, and what he talks about in regards to Jesus here is that he was the most humble man on earth because he was he was God that incarnated himself as man, lived our life, put our skin on, walked our roads. Uh, he condescended into into our existence. And by God's plan, he was crucified, murdered, executed so that we might be reconciled, be made friends of God. Jesus served us. He served us in a grand way. And and so here's the pattern. If you're trusting in Jesus and trying to be like him, which is our goal in, in our faith, then if Jesus served, we are to serve as well. Here's what I've learned about service in my in my few years of life. It ain't easy. I mean, serving is not easy. It's not easy because most of us are selfish. You might not admit it, but I know you. You're all selfish and I'm selfish. Our human hearts are so complex and deceitful that uh, even when we do serve, our motivations to serve are all jacked up. And so, he, so here are some of the ways that we convince ourselves to serve. Some of us serve because we think we value compassion. You see something on TV. You see kids in Africa who have no food, no clothes. There's, there's flies flying all around them. We hear about the earthquake that probably took 10,000 lives in, in Nepal. And we feel sympathy and we feel empathy for those things. And we feel like we're supposed to get involved. Is that true? It's absolutely true. We're, we're moved with emotion to do something about it. We imagine ourselves in that same predicament, and we're just like, well, man, um, I, I got to get involved. And this is the right thing to do. Uh, in the Gospels, we see that Jesus had compassion on people who were, who were down and out, on little kids, people who uh, were lame, sick, uh, had no money. Jesus was, showed compassion on all kinds of people. But Here's the thing. Unless our compassion is connected to something deeper than a picture on TV or reading about it in a a newspaper article or online, it's going to wane very quickly. Can you think back the last three to five years and tell me the location and the exact plight of all the natural disasters that have happened? Can you remember them? We, we can't. If we would start at the, the Vietnam War and look at the, you know, the, the trajectory of, of even war in our country and, and with other nations, assisting other nations, and compare that to public sentiment, when it stops being shown in the newspaper and, and on TV, we forget completely about it. And we might even be against it. Our, our, our public sentiment wanes very quickly. So only compassion that's firmly connected to the gospel is is sustainable. And that's because of the sin in us. And here's the thing. Only gospel fueled compassion goes beyond merely seeing hurting people. It sees hurting people and realizes that Jesus loves them more than our money could could do anything for them or even our, our good thoughts. 
And ultimately, it's not our compassion, but it's Jesus' compassion that fuels and sustains our desire to act on someone else's behalf. We have to remember how gracious Jesus was to us and how he showed us compassion in order for that to drive the compassion that we're supposed to have toward other people. That's the first thing. Some of us uh, serve because we're motivated out of guilt. You know, I, I mean, sometimes I do that to y'all in church, don't I? I, I got to. All right. So. We need people to serve. I need people to greet people at the door. I need people to make coffee. I need people to do kids ministry, all these things. And I don't need you to serve one hour a week, one week a month. And you're going to feel awesome when you finish serving. Now, the truth is, obviously, we need people to serve. We do need people to serve. And there is a joy that can come from serving. But sometimes you all respond out of guilt when you're doing it, you know, with your own wherewithal. Another way that we do this is, you know, most of us in America live very indulgent lifestyles. I mean, indulgent. We have more than we need. Two cars, um, clothes for every day, food that we throw away. And if we, we would compare our lifestyle to the rest of the world, then um, we got way more than we need, folks. And sometimes because of our guilt, we, we wear our stuff a couple days we take the good stuff and we donate it to a charitable cause, thinking that that's going to ease our guilt. Obviously, serving out of guilt is not the right way to 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 go about being motivated to serve. The guilty person serves really to serve themselves. And you don't you don't want to do that. You don't want to serve from a perspective of I'm making it up to God either, like as if uh, you owe something to God. This is what the gospel says. We actually aren't guilty anymore. If you trust in Jesus, then you aren't guilty. Romans 8, 1. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus has already borne your guilt. He's paid for that by his finished work. Some serve because they feel forced to. Um, in my last church, we used to have juvenile delinquents that would be assigned to our church to come clean up. They have community service hours. Uh, actually, this school, all of all of Fairfax County in uh, in the civics course, they have to compete complete uh, hours of community service. You might have grown up in a youth group or some other uh, way that you had to perform community service hours in church, outside of church, and you felt forced to serve. And, and based upon that, I mean, you just hate serving um, from here on out. And and here's the deal with being forced to serve. I mean, it's 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 just temporary. It does nothing to change you from the inside out because you feel forced to do it. And lastly, some serve out of pride. And people that serve out of pride just want to be seen. I want to be seen doing something publicly so other people can think better of me. It's, it's like me getting personal gain from, from people seeing me do something. They're gonna, I mean, I'm, I'm puffing myself up. Um, basically, summing all these up, these are all, all the wrong motives to serve. We shouldn't serve to gain. We shouldn't serve because it's the right thing to do. We actually shouldn't serve because we feel compassionate about it. We shouldn't serve because someone else suggested it. We shouldn't serve because the cause seems the right thing to do. We should serve because Jesus served. Jesus served us. That's the right motivation to serve. And the way Jesus served impacted the communities around him. It changed the world. This is how Jesus served. I'm running out of time. John 13, 3 through 5. John 13, 3 through 5. 
Jesus, knowing that the Father had given him all, all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel that was wrapped around him. Think about how nasty your feet are. Got that? You got that smell. You got that dirty. I've been in my shoes all day long. Kind of a funk. You got it? Okay. Now, project yourself back to the first century where they wore open-toed sandals. And they had dust and mud. And the custom was when you came in someone's house, the lowest of the lowest slave um, took a basin of water and washed your feet so that you would be presentable to come in. And, you know, they were being hospitable. Also, also taking care of your dirty, nasty feet. And so in this scene, Jesus, who's the, you know, He's the biggest, baddest, best of them in the in the group. He takes his clothes off, wraps his clothes like a towel, uses his own clothes as a towel. And he takes the dirty, nasty, stinky, smelly, muddy, cracked feet of his disciples and he washes them. There's no more humbling service that a person can give in this society right there than washing someone's feet. And that's what Jesus did then, and he really is doing that with us now. And so how do we serve such that it impacts our community? I'm going to give these real quick. How do we serve so that we can change the world? The first thing is, I only got two points. First thing is we serve every day. You got to make this a part of your every day. It's got to be, it, it can't be, all right, I'm going to gear myself up and I'm going to go to Africa on a missions trip and I'm going to serve there and I'm going to come back here and, and live my life like, like however I normally live it. It has to become a part of your everyday, a natural part of who you are, a natural part of your rhythm. And if it doesn't become like that, it's always going to be a foreign thing that you put on for a few minutes and then you put off. And that really isn't what God intended for you to serve, nor in how we can change the world. It has to be a part of your everyday. How does it be a part of your everyday? First, you got to make it at home. If you're married, then your spouse is the primary person you should be serving. Ouch. And then your kids. Why? Because there's no one in our lives that know us like our spouses do and our kids do. They see us with our warts and our bruises and our, our stinky breath and our nasty feet and all that. And they have the opportunity to still love us and you love them. And when you serve someone that you know has flaws, I mean, ugh, that's just a beautiful thing, isn't it? It's, it's just how it's supposed, it's supposed to be. If you're single, then you should be serving your roommate. If you're single, you don't have a roommate, you should consider getting one. Why? Because it's hard. I'm serious. It's hard. It's hard for you to experience sanctification by yourself. People around you, especially those who know you best, are, are God's grace to you. They are his means of, of sanctifying you, making you more holy by pressing into you. And you wouldn't even know a lot of your sins unless the people around you bring them up. I mean, we're just that selfish. Secondly, we should be serving in our neighborhood. And, then, you know, here I'm talking about practical stuff. What are the practical things that you can do with the neighbors that are around you that might serve them? Trash can day, pull the trash can up to the trash can spot or after it's been dumped out, pull it back to wherever it was. If they got a, a big home project or you know their, their yard's just a mess, 
Get your lawnmower out and just like mow it one time. That would shock the mess out of them, wouldn't it? Or if you have a special skill that you could just lend to your neighbor, I mean, just maybe just say, hey, I, if you need some help, I would love to. Have you tried this? Actually give your neighbor your contact information and say, hey, I don't know if you ever need anything. Uh, I've got older kids that can babysit. Uh, we can we can do well, we're here to help you with whatever you might need. But here's our contact information. Call us whenever you have a need. It would change the, the landscape of your neighborhood if you absolutely did that. And you'd be representing Jesus by serving as he served. Uh, those of you that work in the marketplace. A lot of us think that our jobs aren't sacred, that there's nothing spiritual about them. But uh, our places of work are spiritual because God invented work. In Genesis 1 and 2, he told Adam, he gave Adam dominion over the world and he gave him labor to do before there was sin in the world. He told Adam, hey, you got something to do. I'm convinced that in eternity, we're not just going to be on harps, on clouds, you know, singing, singing worship songs. We're actually going to be working. There's going to be work for us to do in eternity. And so if if you go to work every day, how do you serve How do you serve faithfully representing Jesus at work? You do your job well. If you're a boss, then you serve as a servant leader downward so that people can see uh, good work in you. And they'd be inclined to ask you, I mean, you're a great boss. I mean, why is it that you're such a great boss when all the rest of the bosses around us are just awful, crappy? And if you are, you know, if you have peers at work, then you serve Jesus by doing your job the best that you possibly can. So that it wouldn't glorify you, but it would glorify him. And obviously, if you're a subordinate, be subordinate very well. Lastly, we serve in the church. God is passionate for his church. The church is the vehicle that God uses to advance his kingdom. The church is the entity that God has come up with to change the world. And our job as the church is is to do just that, to change the world. And he's not looking for us to um, to organize a mission trip and go some far away place to, to do that. He wants us to do it, not even, even in, not even in weird ways. He wants us to do it right where we live and work in the everyday things, because if we don't do it that way, it becomes a, we put on a show and we'll do it for that those few minutes. But it won't be something that has lasting impact, not only in our community, but in our own heart. And he's trying to change you as you serve as well as change the community around us. Uh, God's method of you serving your church is to use your gifts as he, uh, the gifts he gives believers. And so in Romans 12, God tells us to give, uh, God, uh, Paul tells us God gives us gifts to serve each other. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul devoted an entire chapter to challenging believers like us to use our gifts for the common good of others in the body. In 1 Peter 4, Peter commanded all believers to use whatever gift they've received to serve. And so I would ask you, what gifts do you have that you have yet to use in the context of of a local church? I I always use I always say this phrase, serve where you're gifted or serve where where there's a need. There's uh, we're a young church. There's lots of needs. Where are you gifted to serve? The second thing, and this is the last point, since you're serving in the gospel. And so after Jesus served his disciples by washing their feet, he told them that they should wash each other's feet. 
we should be doing like Jesus. We should, we're supposed to be washing other people's feet. Because Jesus served people, we're to serve each other. That's what he offers us, to come alongside him in. And, and so the natural implication of the gospel, and the practical, practical application rather, is that we serve wherever we are. Don't just wait for some special opportunity to serve. Serve in your home. Serve in your neighborhood. Serve when you go to work. And absolutely, serve in your church. Jesus, to this day, is serving us, Transit Church. He serves us by washing us from our sin. We bring our stinky, nasty, dirty feet to Jesus every time we sin. And this is a beautiful text in 1 John that says, if you confess your sin, Jesus is faithful and just to forgive us and wash you, to cleanse you from your unrighteousness. And so this is the, the, the picture he's giving us. You're bringing your nasty feet with your sin. Jesus is coming and you're confessing. He's forgiving you and he's taking his clothes off once again. And he is washing. He's washing the dirt off of you. He's cleansing you by his word, through his spirit to make you who he wants you to be. It doesn't say you're not going to sin. We can't stop that. But the beautiful picture is Jesus is continually serving us. And he offers us the opportunity to do the same thing. Let's be a church that's centered on Jesus. That really is what our vision is, that we're centered on Jesus for our own transformation, transform lives, and that we're centered on Jesus for what he's called us to do, to impact the community. He's not calling any. He may be calling some of y'all to go to Africa and be a missionary and do do all that kind of stuff. But I think He's calling most of us to impact the community right where we are every day, in your home, where you work, in your neighborhood, in your church. Let's be those kinds of people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, for your exhortation, for the challenge to join you in your work. Lord, we want to be a people who are transformed by the timeless message of your gospel. Lord, we believe that the gospel is more than just praying a prayer, walking the aisle, and and repeating after somebody. Surely, we don't doubt that that can save a person, but our confession is that you intended more. You intended the gospel to be that message that, that seals us in you such that we gain our satisfaction. Our acceptance comes from not what we do, but from what you've done. And that we live out of that. Help us to be people who know that we belong to you. That your spirit is doing a great work in us to make us more like you. And Lord, we we thank you for the challenge to be people who are transforming the world through the little things that we do. Empower us by your spirit. Encourage us through your word. Help us to be faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.